Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kalia will edify you. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kalia are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn podcast, the podcast where we, Jennifer and Kalia, two book nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Today we will be discussing Jaws, first the 1974 novel by Peter Benchley and then the 1975 film adaptation. But first we're going to tell you all the ways that you can connect with us on the internet. As you know, we have a webpage where you can find sources, references, and updates about the show. You can also connect with us via our Facebook page or our Twitter feed. They are both searchable by typing in Pages and Popcorn Podcast into your search bar. And we are on Goodreads, so no matter how you use the social media thing, you can connect with us. And of course, you can email us directly at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. And we really want to encourage you to rate and review us on whatever platform you listen to us on, especially iTunes, because that will help other people find us. And as always, we want to thank our patrons for their ongoing support. We have a supplemental episode coming to your direction the next few days, so keep an eye out for your email. And if you have not yet become a patron and you want to find out about this supplemental episode, please do so. Um, it's never too late to join us. So $1 a month, or if you're feeling especially generous, $5 a month, and that'll get you early access to the podcast as well as our supplemental material now on with the show yeah so we have both read this book before i have a confession to make oh yes when we read it for book club Two years ago? Three years ago? When? Actually, I had to look this up. It was in 2015. Okay. Four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, I read the first part of it, and then it got to a 
specific uh, plot point. point, yes, moment of time. And I was like, oh. And then I put it down and didn't finish it. And then I kind of came in towards the end and read the very end. And I don't typically do that. So I always meant to like go back and actually read through the whole book and not mm-hmm. be cherry picking. I don't, I don't, I very rarely cherry pick through a book. And I don't think I've, sure can, you don't. I can't think of any other book that I've only read the very end of uh, for book club, but I wanted to, you know, read it for, and then I watched the movie for book club too. So I, those were the only two times. So that, and then reading it recently for this, and I did read the whole thing this time, and then watching the movie this time was only my second viewing of the movie ever, so. Oh, wow. Yeah. I watched the movie because it was, like, the movie that came out, so whenever it was showing on the Sunday matinee, I saw it again. I was fairly familiar with it. I also got to see it at the Warner's Theater when they were doing old films, and that was a really cool experience. To see it on the big screen? It not only was it on the big screen, and this kind of surprised me, it seemed like a lot of the audience hadn't seen it before because they all had that reaction mm. to the shark at certain moments. Interesting. And it was almost like being on a roller coaster because the whole theater is going, <laughs> So, yeah, that was really visceral and cool, and it's the closest I will ever come to back before VHS when you had the movie theater and that was it. That was the one time you were going to see a film. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah, sometimes it's worth it to see a movie in the big screen and, and on opening weekends and stuff to get that fan reaction and that yeah. that kind of group mentality. I, I think it was Stardust, not to take us on a weird tangent here, but I saw Stardust in the movie theater years ago, and I think it was probably opening weekend, and I... That was probably the most fun I've ever had in a movie theater. People were laughing and clapping and engaged and and responding to the screen. And it was, I mean, it was fun. It was it was really fun. It was a really dumb, fun movie, and it was a really dumb, fun audience. And okay, so this is a major tangent, but I just want to mention I got to see The Princess Bride in the theater as an old film that they were playing. And the entire film was being quoted by the audience oh. as it was going. <laughs> yeah, you see, you get to a certain point, that just gets annoying. Or it gets a little too Rocky Horror Picture Show, where the, uh, there's all these indos and, uh, yeah, whatever. But it's just something about The Princess Bride that's eminently quotable. Well, that is that is true. All right, so shall we start with uh, recaps here? Yes. All right, so we're going to start with the book. Peter Benchley's 1974 Jaws opens with the seaside town of Amity and starts with the point of view of the shark. We switch to Chrissy Watkins, who is skinny dipping in the ocean when the shark kills her. Her body washes ashore. Chief Martin Brody wants to shut down the beaches until further investigation. The mayor, Larry Vaughn, is worried about the summer season, which the town's economy needs to survive during the off-season. With the help of the local news editor, Harry Meadows, the story is silenced. A few days later, the shark kills a young boy, Alex, and an old man not far from the shore. Ben Gardner, a local fisherman, is sent to try and kill the shark, but his boat is found empty a few days later with massive bite holes. Brody and Deputy Leonard Hendricks find Gardner's boat empty with a shark's tooth embedded in one of the holes. Brody again tries to close the beaches against the mayor's wishes. Meadows investigates the mayor and finds out he has ties to the mafia. The mafia is putting pressure on Vaughn to protect their investments in real estate. Meadows asked ichthyologist Matt Hooper to come in and advise them how to deal with shark attacks. Brody and his wife Ellen have a somewhat strained relationship, partly because Ellen misses the affluent life she was born into. After a disastrous dinner Ellen throws, she decides to have an affair with Hooper. By the way, Ellen is right and Brody is wrong. Lamb is served rare. 
She arranges a lunch date with Hooper, who turns out to be the younger brother of one of her boyfriends. And they have um, they have an encounter. Meanwhile, tourists are flooding in the town, hoping to catch a glimpse of the shark. They are kind of the standard New York oblivious tourist, kind of the ugly American stereotype. Another boy narrowly escapes, and at that point, Brody hires Quint, a shark hunter, to close the beaches, and he, Hooper, and Quint go off to get the shark. And we get to the last act of this. They're on Quint's boat, but sooner have major disagreements over what to do. Hooper does not like Quint's method, and Quint thinks Hooper is a rich city boy. Brody has his suspicion over the affair, which he can't prove, but he and Hooper have a violent argument at one point. Hooper kind of saying that he was going to have uh, another encounter with his wife. See, Hooper had convinced the two to come along with the shark cage, an idea Quint finds suicidal. Hooper decides to take the pictures before killing the shark. He gets in the cage, but the shark pulls the bars apart and kills him. That's actually pretty cool because Hooper is a dick. Back at home, Ellen gets a farewell from the mayor, who is leaving because of the mafia. Quint and Brody return the following day to find the shark again. Quint tries unsuccessfully to harpoon the shark. He finally does as the shark begins ramming the boat. The shark tears holes into the hull and the boat begins to sink. Quint's foot is caught in the rope of the harpoon and he is dragged underwater to his death. Brody sits in the sinking boat and sees the shark coming towards him. He's prepared to die. Just as the shark reaches the boat, it succumbs to its injuries. It sinks below the water along with Quint's body and Brody manages to paddle back to the shore on the remaining piece of the boat. And that is the end of the book. All right, so now we get to the movie. Uh, one of the most infamous soundtracks in movie history starts playing over some rather pretty footage of the ocean floor of a New England town. It's basically Martha's Vineyard, but Amity Island. With a smile on a chase, Chrissy Watkins and a boy at the beach party run off to go skinny dipping in the ocean. She's graceful and flirtatious. He's a drunken dork who passes out on the beach. Da-dum. Da-dum. The camera races up from under the ocean floor. Chrissy is jerked wildly about and pulled under. Next morning, we're with Martin Brody, a family man and town sheriff with an easy job. His usual complaint is the kids taking karate lessons are kicking the fences. It's so stressful. He gets a call about a girl and ventures with formerly drunk boy on the beach only to find his deputy broken up and about to be sick. They found what's left of Chrissy's body. Chief Brody runs through the super cute small town with marching bands and orders no swimming at the beaches. Mayor Larry Vaughn, with the unctuous charm of a used car salesman, overrules Brody for the sake of the town's economy. With the coroner on the mayor's side, the beaches are reopened. A week later, Brody is watching over the townsfolk and summer visitors at the beach. We get some snippets about islander culture, and Brody is afraid of water. So naturally, he lives on an island. Kids are playing in the ocean. There's another attack. It's gruesome, and Alex's mother is left on the beach, calling for him until a bloody raft washes ashore. At a town meeting, nobody wants to close the beaches because of summer tourism. Quint makes his introduction in his uniquely annoying and sinister way. Grieving, Alex's mother slaps Brody for not closing the beaches when he knew of the dead body and offers a reward of $3,000 to anyone who can catch the fish. The locals go nuts for the bounty. Matt Hooper, an ichthyologist, confirms the attacks were because of a shark and not the tiger shark caught by the fishermen. Hooper's autopsy of the bodies showed that they were killed by a large shark, and the caught tiger shark doesn't have any human remains to prove it was the killer shark. There's a little nod to the dinner scene in the book when Hooper joins Brody's for dinner. Hooper and Brody boat out that night to find the sunken vessel of one of the fishermen. Hooper gets a tooth pulled out of the boat. The corpse scares him, and 
and he drops the Duke, and they race back to the shore. They go to the mayor the next day, pleading to close the beaches, but nothing doing. Fourth of July weekend, it's huge tourism season. The next morning, Mayor Vaughn, being disgusting, forces his friend to take his family into the ocean. They are terrified, but their swimming encourages everyone else to go swimming. Oh no, shark! Panic ensues, and a mad rush gets to the beach. It's as disgusting as mob scenes can be with people getting trampled and kids getting turned over, and it's gross. Turns out to be two kids playing playing a prank. Uh, meanwhile, Brody's son is boating in the estuary where the shark really is. In the first real glimpse of the shark, a boater is killed. Brody's son survives but is in shock. Mayor Vaughn agrees to hire Quint for $10,000 with Hooper and Brody accompanying the old sailor on his boat, the Orca. There's some masculine posturing on Quint's side, but the three gradually come to a tense camaraderie during the shark hunt. Brody sees the shark and utters the famous line, you're going to need a bigger boat. They harpoon the shark, attaching a tracker and flotation barrel. The music goes from tense to adventurous. That night, they tell stories, and Quint shares that he was a survivor of the sinking of the USS Indianapolis, hence his issues with sharks. The shark attacks the boat. Quint gets another barrel attached. The next morning, the shark returns, and when Brody tries to radio for help, Quint destroys it with a baseball bat. When they try to tow the shark to shore, the shark actually starts to tow them. And at this point, Quint is total Captain Ahab, and the engine blows. Hooper decides to go under with his fancy scuba gear and a poison spear. The shark destroys the cage, and Hooper escapes to the ocean floor. Yay, because we like Hooper and don't want him to die. The shark leaps onto the back of the boat, killing a screaming Quint. The boat is sinking. Brody manages to get one of the scuba tanks lodged into the shark's mouth. When the shark comes back to eat Brody, he shoots the tank, exploding the shark in a fantastic bit of gore. Hooper resurfaces, and the two start swimming back to shore. Dun, da, da, da. Slightly mangled overview. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this is one of the most infamous movies because it started the summer of blockbuster. It was one of those B films that usually didn't have a huge budget, but made a massive killing. It was the number uh, one what? Killing. Ha! Ba-dum-bum. <laughs> or da-dum-dum. Yeah, either way. Yeah, and it was the highest grossing film until Star Wars came out a few years later. Exactly. Yeah, so. And it was, I mean, considering the, the, the speed. So... This I find interesting before we even really get into it. Mm -hmm. um, Peter Benchley was trying to make a living as a writer and he was pushing all these nonfiction stuff and he had he had lunch with a guy from Doubleday and was like, I have this shark adventure story. And they were like, great. So they paid him in advance and he wrote it. And it literally, I mean, it took him a year and a half to write the book. Okay. A year and a half to write the book. Fine. It came out in, in 1974 and the movie came out in 1975. Like it got optioned fast this yeah. is one of those kind of like a simple favor that we did where they were basically like oh this is this is the thing now simple favor they were like oh we're going to capitalize on a current trend this was we're going to start a trend which is pretty cool you know so whatever you can say about the genre or the summer blockbuster or shark movies or horror or anything like that that's just kind of cool that's also even more impressive when you consider how over budget and over time they went. Originally, it was supposed to be a shooting that would take two months, and I think it went to 159 days. Yeah, it went from 55 days to 155. It's just crazy, and yeah. like doubled the budget. Well, because Steven Spielberg wanted to shoot out on the ocean instead of like in a tank, which is really cool. And some of the cinematography of this film is really great. And I really liked the camera work on the boat. They're re it's really up close and personal. It's pushing in. You feel claustrophobic 
on a boat out in the middle of the ocean. And I just thought it was very well done. So this is an infamous thing, um, but I'm going to sit here because this is what this podcast is about. They could not get the shark to work. They would get it to work and then the salt water would mess with the mechanics. And so that was one of the reasons that you don't see the shark very much, but it was one of those fantastic blunders that turned out to be a good thing because it does make it more sinister. You don't see the shark. And when you do, it's like, oh, shit. Yeah, Steven Spielberg even says, you know, it went from kind of this this very hokey Godzilla type thing into more of a Hitchcock thing where, you know, the fear was that of what you couldn't see. So Yeah, but that's one of the reasons it went over budget and over time. And there are so many issues with this. Yeah. Um, He also had multiple writers, one of whom, uh, one of the last writers who added a lot of the comedy into the movie, Mm -hmm. which is not in the book whatsoever. Which is funny because the original book was written as a comedy and they sent it back to Peter Benchley and were like, this, this isn't funny. Can you, because his first couple pages they loved. And then he wrote all this rest of it and it was like, it was funny. And they wrote back and they said, no, 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 stick to the tone that you set up in the first couple pages. That's what we want. So we did. And then when they were making the movie, they're like, hmm, you know what this needs? Jokes. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite joke that happens in the movie, um, I, I, Hooper's great in the movie, and we'll talk more about him. He has some good lines. But my favorite is with the wife, with Ellen. So the kid's in the in, in a little boat sitting at the end of the dock. You know, Brody's all scared. Get out of the boat. You know, get yeah. out of the water. And she's like, he's not in the water. He's in a boat. He's fine. Blah, blah, blah. And then Brody's like, okay, fine. And he kind of starts to gaze off and change the subject. And she opens one of his shark books, and there's a literal picture of a shark attacking a boat. And suddenly the mom's like, didn't you hear your dad? Get out of the yes i thought that was great my favorite was the introduction of richard dreyfus of hooper and all the fishermen are overcrowding the boats and he's like oh you're all going to die he says it with a smile as he leaves them yeah yeah they're not going to listen to him i mean i don't know if we want to go to the the different characters or we want to use that as a springboard into the classism and sure either way it really works oh so hooper 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 Hooray for Hooper. First of all. Okay, no hooray for Book Hooper because he's a dick. Yes. Hooray for Movie Hooper because movie he's Hooper. awesome. He is so awesome yeah. in the movie and such a horrible twat in the book. Yes, I agree with you. So that was a great change to be made. And I can see why they would keep that in the book because it does add a lot more tension. And I see why they would change it for the movie because you want to root for people. Yes, exactly. Like there wasn't anybody super likable in the book. Brody was probably the most likable in the book, but even he was, you're kind of like, okay, like, I don't know. I didn't identify with Brody. I was like, I I know you're the protagonist and I'm rooting for you because I guess that's what we're supposed to do. But I didn't really spark that in the movie. I was really rooting for Brody and Hooper. So I, yeah, I, I think it was a great change. I, Definitely. And the casting in the book, he's all good looking and suave and and wealthy and wealthy. Well, and in the movie, he's still wealthy, but he's nerdy. He's got the glasses. He's got the doofy hair and he's like kind of small and scrawny, you know. And so So I was looking at some of the original casting choices they had. And John Voight was one of the people they originally wanted to have as Hooper. I thought, no, that's just it's not the right tone. Richard Dreyfuss has that nerdy funny sort of and he's got that laugh yeah that ridiculous laugh and so you want to like him he's just got that charisma he's very likable and john voight would have just been too serious he doesn't do comedy very well yeah i i thought the casting was really great and especially with hooper and that that was a change i was really happy to see and and the fact that then there wasn't this romance you know, yes. it kept it kept Brody and Hooper being on the same side. They were there was camaraderie there. They at one point they were like the only great people 
Um, it was kind of them against the town, you know, and mm-hmm. then Quint came in later and had those motivations. But yeah, it was definitely the, the bromance between Brody and and uh, and Hooper was strong. In, in not yeah. in a sexual, just in a very no, friendly, I, I'm, awesome. I'm totally for the bromance and none of the romance. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I'm yeah, I'm glad that I'm glad that Hooper became what, like you said, got bromance, not romance in the movie. <laughs> and then that kind of leads us into Ellen. She was she was much uh, a bigger character in the book. We, we got her internal thoughts and monologues and feelings and details and blah, blah, blah. But I did not like her at all. And they changed her in the movie. She had a much smaller part. But, she's but also, she was great. Yeah, she's much more likable. Much more likable. And it, 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 it firmed up the sense of family that Brody had. You know, that was his... Oh God, I heard what I was about to say. That was his anchor to the town, was his family. You know, and, and that's why he was motivated spoke to his motivations and it was it was great and and they were on the same team so in the book Brody was an island or was the town guy and she Ellen had been a summer person who had then married him and stayed and so there there was a class issue but there was also an us versus them da, 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 da. in the movie both of them had come from New York this was their first summer here together so just from the get-go they are a team and it's not a fractured marriage and it's it's not there's nobody dealing with the what ifs of different lives and blah 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 blah. So originally Benchley wrote a scene between Brody and his wife and they were supposed to have a fairly good relationship and he was told nope this needs to be changed it's just not salacious enough it's not sexy enough and that's when he wrote the affair. <laughs> I have to say though I found the restaurant scene to be really intriguing and that's where you get any sort of seduction involved because when you get to the actual sex scene it's kind of weird and gross well and then that's that's actually i think the point because yeah. ellen has this whole romantic thing and she went so she initiates and he's up for it and there's this whole up for it but um bum but um bum and you know so like yes they're in the restaurant and it's kind of like this will they won't they and like you know what do you say that makes your intentions clear with like that gives you enough room to backpedal if it's not you know well received yeah. and, like it was it was fine it was that was it, there was a certain amount of tension there but then the actual sex was awful she didn't like it at all and and like her description of him a grimacing and his eyes fixed upon the wall and he just pumping away madly, like forgetting that she was even there. And she's just tap him on the back and be like, I exist. <laughs> and, and so then it's like buyer's remorse too. She's like, well, this was not, this was not really what I wanted. Was, is when they were talking about their fantasies, that's exactly what he said. Uh-huh. Oh, the first time I'm just going to be crazy and wild. And then the next and time. And it's not about you at all. It's just about me getting out my needs. And she's like, ooh, that sounds exciting. And yeah, then it so happens. fantasy versus reality. Right. And she's like, <laughs> oh, this, I didn't like that. That wasn't great. And then, you know, she realizes that her husband is pretty awesome. And, you know, she didn't really want that life and blah, blah, blah and, and stuff. And, you know, then she feels bad and, ah, <laughs> <laughs> But that, I don't know. I was thinking about Hooper and the changes that you make in these sort of films. So why have that tension in the book? How can you get away with that in a book or is in a movie you want to root for these people? And that's part of what makes it a summer blockbuster is you have, you know, the guys that you enjoy overcoming well the I, monster. Whereas in a book you could have those those darker characteristics, I suppose. I think that the movie, and this kind of goes to a lot of blockbuster stuff, is 
gosh, full of nautical puns tonight. It's very <laughs> surface in in the fact that you want it to be easy. You want good versus evil. You know exactly who to root for. You don't want to have to think too much. That's kind of the point of a big, dumb, fun blockbuster movie, right? You go in knowing who the good guys are, and you know that it's going to have a happy ending. And if it doesn't have those things, then it's it, it has failed in some way. So for for being a blockbustery fun summer movie. So in this case what that's what we needed. We needed Brody and Hooper to be friendly. We needed them to survive. We needed the the villain to be the shark and of course we have the other villain of the mayor and which was also much darker in in the book. So this is one of the subplots they took out to the betterment of the film because you can't film everything. Mm-hmm. And the mafia just take it out. It doesn't really further anything. Just having the town's economy need tourism is enough pressure. Right. Well, and also what it did in the book was it made the mayor a sympathetic character, too. It's like he he's in a rock and a hard place and he has to get his comeuppance and da 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 da. And that served to, to teach Ellen a lesson that, you know, all is not greener in the greener pastures. But it definitely muddied things and it, it just it, it wasn't needed, like you said. Um, the obliviousness of the businessman was enough of a of a motivation plus you know fewer people died in the movie than in the book so it was a little bit more believable that they would keep the the beaches open and they didn't really talk about this in the movie but i did think it was important the first person who dies is christy and she's not from the town she's a she's a visitor young gal and nobody ever talks about her family. Nobody nobody really cares. Her date didn't even really know her very well. That's kind of like this thing. Yeah. So she's very expendable. And the town's like, whatever, we don't care. That's not one of ours. Then Alex, the little boy who is part of the town, you know, then that happens. Suddenly it's bad. And there's an old man. Nobody really cares about the old man. But the fisherman, when the fisherman goes down in his boat and like, oh God, and what is his wife going to do? And like, that's the serious thing. She's going to have to go on welfare. She's got kids and who's going to take care of her. Suddenly it becomes so much more personal. And I thought that was an interesting theme about not only the us versus them, but when tragedy happens to other people, it's not nearly as bad as when it happens to us. And so that changes our motivations to help, right? You're much more likely to get involved in a political thing or, any kind of resistance when you're personally involved. There's also a lot to do with groups and types of groups. So you have sort of the working class versus the wealthy. That would be Ellen and almost the rest of the town. And then there's a lot of racism in the town in the book. That's not very much explored. And I almost want to call it benevolent racism, where they think they're trying to do something right by the town, but it's racist as hell when you look back at it. Yeah. And so do you excuse it because it's 1974 and there are just certain thoughts at the time? Well, not excuse it, but maybe understand why they thought the way they did. Mm -hmm. Um, So at one point, uh, Brody's talking to a guy about, all right, so the the town's having struggles economically. Do you hire the white guy or the black guy? And uh, the guy says, you hire the black guy because the white kids got parents and stuff who will take care of them. And the black guy, their family is going to go down and then they're going to get violent. And right. <laughs> I have to hire the black guy because of otherwise it'll be a race riot. Yeah. And also because, you know, they need it more, blah, blah, blah. But his first, yeah, yeah. it'll be a race. Yeah. And there's, there's like no people of color in the movie. They just, we'll just sidestep this whole issue. So that's go. a subplot that's been taken out. Uh, Harry Meadows is completely gone. There's one sort of cameo by Peter Benchley in the film, and that's the news reporter. 
who's on camera, and so he's talking to yeah, the different. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but Harry, Harry Meadows, Meadows is gone. he's there, like, and it's one of the screenwriters who plays him, and and you know he's so he's technically there. He's in a couple of scenes, but he's definitely not a major character. He doesn't do much for anything except lead them all into another room at one point and kind of be you know there. So yeah, the, which was fine, except that I kind of liked Meadows as a character in the book. You know, I liked him way more than the the lawman. I liked him way more than Hooper, just because he was like the small town guy who who had uncovered things and he wanted to protect the town but he also had this journalistic need to like tell the truth but you know he, he had his quandaries too you know yeah, there's and, some interesting manipulation of townsfolk so yes. we're going to bury this story and i know this but i'm not going to say it yeah and that, that so the book did a good job of setting up the feeling of a small town for me better than the movie actually i mean the movie had the things you had the marching band you had the people you had them go through the town at one point all the white picket fences and the little businesses and stuff and they tried you know the little people talking oh somebody's parked in front of my house and oh these kids with the karate chopping and stuff it was very cute but because we got more of that in the town and we also got more vignettes in the town we had these random little scenes that had nothing to do with brody or the shark they were just people living their lives that father putting his son to bed and the son wanting to hear about sharks and a kid saying i'm gonna have to either quit college or sell drugs to pay for it or you know what I mean like mm -hmm. things you know because I got fired from my job so lots of these other little tiny scenes that happen um so that kind of set up a, a a more expansive view of the town so but you know I think the movie did a great job with what it was and I I'm okay with them taking out the vignettes again in film you want to have your core main characters and then those are the ones you're going to root for and you want their subplots to definitely inform the main plot not yeah and it's how much do you want to muddy a plot and in a film you just don't have the same amount of time right exactly so um and i like the change that they made brody afraid of water so you know you have again that makes it more heroic that he's going out there on the boat it just it adds a whole bunch of levels to it i did think it was a funny line in the movie where he was like you know hooper's like well, if you're afraid of water why do you live on an island and brody says well it's not an island if, it's only an island when you're on it or like it's not an island if you look at it from a different point of view and it's like it doesn't make any sense and Hooper's like that doesn't make sense like he kind of calls him on it he's like that's what yeah. <laughs> so but yeah I, I I liked Brody I liked Brody a lot um let's see here so another thing I didn't mention this in my recap but this was just profane on a level that it was really disturbing to me as it was meant to be Quint has a dolphin baby, like an unborn dolphin yeah, baby. Yeah, a little porpoise. Yeah. And that's what he was going to use as bait for the shark. And they call him out. They say, what are you doing? I mean, these are endangered creatures. You you can't. You can't. And he's like, you, you don't understand. You're rich. You don't have to survive. I do. And this is what we do. Yeah. Yeah, so, they played with that. And he also killed a different shark, too, a blue, and, and gutted it and used it as chum and yeah. all sorts of stuff. So Quint in the book is troublesome, to say the least. Right. And they, they, they kind of... It's funny because they lessened some parts of his character for the movie. Like, they didn't have the porpoise. They didn't have that kind of stuff. But then they made him more. Like, he was singing sea shanty songs. And he was very pirate-esque out there, you know? But very charismatic pirate-esque. And in the book, he takes the job. He's going to get paid. And then it becomes very personal for him. And he decides, I'm going to do this anyways without the money. I'm going to go get the shark. And he definitely has his Captain Ahab moments. And then he goes down with the shark, just like Captain Ahab with the whale, right? Being tied to it and stuff with the harpoon. In the movie, 
he wants way more money, way more money to go after this this shark. And it's definitely a paid gig. He gets to that now it's personal thing, but they're already out there. And it's it, there is that story about USS Indianapolis. Right. They added that in. So he had like a personal vendetta against just sharks in general. So just a little bit of a history lesson. Uh this was a vessel that was taking basically H bomb materials to an island. It was uh, hit by Japanese torpedoes out of the some thousand men who were on it, only 300 survived. So some of them were killed in the initial blast. And then the sailors were out there for a couple days and most of them got either killed by exposure or eaten by sharks or something. So he does have a personal vested interest. Yes. So there was actually a lot of improvisation done for the film just because the writing was done almost the night before yeah. a lot of the rewriting. Mm-hmm. So we're going to need a bigger boat. That was improvised. Well, and then Shaw himself came up with a lot of that Indianapolis monologue and really added to it and stuff. So in order to get his accent down, he did talk to a local fisherman, learned a bunch of the stories and incorporated those into his character. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. So Quint um, was played by a real life kind of piratey guy. He just had that sort of maverick personality and it comes through. Yeah. But he's, even Quint has some of that humoristic charm that Dreyfus has. Yeah. You do kind of root for him, even at his crazy moments. And they play off each other really well. Yeah. Hooper and Quint. I mean, they, at one point, they're both wearing the same shirt. It's the same blue shirt. But they're the polar opposites of one another. You've got the working man, and then you've got the rich kid. And you've got the, you know, white collar, blue collar. And you've got, I do this, and you do that. And you're with your book learning and on your fancy technology. And what's going to really save the day in the end? Is it brains or is it bronze? And then in the middle, you have Brody, who's the everyman, ordinary man, who has that combination of both. So he's got the bronze. He, he is a sheriff. He's got the heroic aspects. But he has the brains. He thinks, oh, I'm going to shove this you know, compressed air, and then I'm going to shoot it. So, like, that's that's both. Do you know what I mean? And then he's the one who lives. And, of course, then also Hooper lives. Yay! Because we liked him in the movie. But it, it definitely was Brody kind of straddling those those two ideas of, of what it is to be a man. In. So that was also a great change. The book ends on a really depressing note. So there's a good bookend, bookend on the book, of it starts from the, the point of view of the shark, of why it has to swim, what it's doing. There's not a whole lot of brain involved. And in some respects, I kind of wish they didn't do that because when they're on the boat, the shark becomes this almost mythological thing of it's thinking, it's doing this, it's strategizing. Yes. The shark gets very, was it anthropomorphic? Yes, it does. And it's like the shark has a vendetta against them. And, Okay, sure. And <laughs> in, in the in the book, I was I didn't like that because it had started off very scientific, like you're saying. In the movie, sure, it it's a bad guy. Yeah, sure. That's why I didn't like the shark point of view, just mm-hmm. because it sort of ruins those moments. I mean, if you are in fear and you're on this little boat and there's this shark that is way more powerful than you ever expected, Mm -hmm. it would feel like that. You do blow it up in your mind. So what do you think is more scary, though? Something that's going to kill you because you just happen to be there or something that's like, I don't like Jennifer and I'm going to go after Jennifer. Do you know what I mean? Like, what is scarier? Just being chum <laughs> or or you know what I mean does that make sense like I think in nature it's almost scarier because nature just doesn't give a fuck nature just you know like, well it's obviously inventions of their mind 
Yeah. You know, it's the kid who's in the dark, and so they'll invent the monster, the monsters. And they have a literal monster in front of them, and so they're inventing all this stuff because they're afraid. And I can understand when you're in a fear moment, oh my god, it's doing a thing. It's behaving in unexpected right. ways. Well, and then Quint kept saying, this doesn't happen, sharks don't do this, Shark- or fish are stupid, blah, blah, blah. And then this fish was like, yeah, fuck you, I'm gonna <laughs> just... And then he was like, oh my gosh, this one is special and different, and... and Yada yada. So I, I appreciated the bookend of we start with the shark and then we kind of end with the shark, so we know that it's really dead. The way it's spiraling down, and there's Quint looking up, who's yeah. dead. So and then Brody paddles. Yeah, or he kicks his way towards. Her. Hopefully, he'll get there. So it's a dark, slow ending. Or is the movie? You're just cheering. It's it's awesome. It's explosions. Yeah, it, it the shark explodes, and then and then Cooper pops out of the water. It's like oh. They grab the they grab the barrels, which is cool because that was the thing that was basically what killed the shark. Were the barrels by you know making it have to come back? It has to surface all this stuff, and they're using those barrels for air to to then paddle off toward. And you see the seagull, so you know they're close. Yeah, and that you know that was that was cool. Yeah, no, I, I liked it. But I did think this was interesting. I read this on the internet. Um, how the shark is a metaphor for the recession because this book was written during a recession. Um, the shark or the recession, an unrelenting, non-discriminating force that literally drags its victims down. But it's not a threat that can be overcome. It's not. Um, it just has to be endured. I thought that was interesting because they kind of had that idea. They were like, well, the shark will be here until there's no more food for it uh, or we kill it. Like those are the only ways that we can deal with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be completely you know, s- secure, we're going to have to kill it. Otherwise, we'll always wonder. And yeah, but I thought that was kind of cool. And it kind of goes with that, like, the man, all capital letters here, the mayor doesn't care about the common man because, you know, he's got business interests that are more important. You know, the idea of the common enemy can make you friends. I thought that was good. Yeah, there's some very smart changes they made to make this movie work. Oh, just to go back to the to the three men on the boat. <laughs> um Let's see here. It's uh, Neil Gabler analyzed the film as showing three different approaches to solving an obstacle. Science, represented by Hooper. Spiritualism, represented by Quint. And the common man, represented by Brody. The last of the three is the one which succeeds, and it is that way he is the one endorsed by the film. Which, again, you know, we have our good guys, our bad guys, and the people that we want to root for in in a summer blockbuster without having to think about it too much. So the legacy of Jaws, people are still afraid of sharks. There's Shark Week that probably wouldn't be here if not for this movie capturing mm-hmm. everyone's attention. Uh, Peter Benchley has gone on the record numerous times that he regrets making the sharks such a villain because it really has affected the number of sharks. They were fished or they were hunted down to, to minuscule sizes and they are important for the ecology. Yeah, he even had a quote at one point, I think it was in the early 2000s, that, you know, so much information come to light in the last you know 30 years that he couldn't make, he wouldn't write the same book. He would not have felt, respond, you know, he, that he could because it would just be, it would be in bad taste. And he actually started um, conservation efforts. And before he died, he was a major player in the terms of uh, oceanography and conservation, wrote other books, nonfiction as well as fiction about the oceans and sharks. So, yeah. Let's see. Anything else? Do you have any points that you want to go through? I This is just funny. I was looking at a list online of the differences between the two, and one of them is like, 
you know, novel, shark dies of exhaustion. Film, shark explodes. Novel, Ellen sleeps with Hooper. Film, Ellen hugs Hooper politely. Novel, <laughs> Mayor Larry Vaughn wears timeless British jackets. Film, Mayor Larry Vaughn rocks anchor jacket. <laughs> you know, all this stuff. That was, that was pretty good. Anyway. Yeah, I like, you know, Quint crushes beer cans on the deck and tosses him overboard. Rupert taunts him by crushing his styrofoam coffee cup. Yes. Because, oh, you're so manly. Let me crush my cup at you. you. <laughs> yes. So I kind of love how much emphasis is put on the boat's name, the Orca. Mm-hmm. Because sharks and dolphins do not get along. Uh, sharks are an apex predator, but they do not like dolphins. Dolphins gain up and just go to town on sharks and orcas they're called a killer whale they're really are a dolphin oh okay i was i was starting to wonder i thought that they were killer whales. i thought they were more whale like than no they're they're a dolphin they're the biggest dolphin interesting in the book his boat was was it also named the orca in the book okay and that's even funnier that he had the porpoise in the book yeah it's a little gross that way it's super gross but yeah. yeah so sharks will leave if dolphins are around and orcas, they they do not like sharks. They will totally go after them. So that's cool about orcas. The more you know. Yes. <laughs> um, my note says, Vaughn, pure dipshit. <laughs> yeah, he is just an oily oh. car salesman. And here's a great quote from some quint that I had to... Uh, okay. He says, something about you want to go swimming with bow-legged women. Yes. <laughs> like, you know... <laughs> Also, okay, so the movie is a little dated. Like, they're smoking in a hospital, and nobody has a cell phone, and, you know, whatever. But also, it's kind of timeless. It it doesn't need a lot of those technology things. The story works. It's fun. And uh, I definitely think that, it, you know, if it was made today in, in a similar way, we'd probably do a little bit more with the ideas of toxic masculinity. But it was fine the way it was, because we got those messages without having to get bonked-bonked over the head. Uh, if I... I don't know. The film is kind of remade all the time in different iterations, like snakes on a plane, you know, Sharknado. <laughs> there, there are tons of variations on the shark theme because of this. Yeah, and then there was a bunch of sequels to this too that uh, eventually oh wasn't involved in. So. Okay, yeah, don't watch Jaws four unless you're with friends and you have some shot classes and you want to play a drinking game. It is, it is reprehensible in its idiocy. Yeah. I think Michael Caine was in either Jaws 3 or Jaws 4, and there was an interview with him at one point, and they said, oh, have you seen the movie? And he said, well, no, but I saw the the house that the movie bought. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was definitely a paycheck role for him. Yeah, for sure, and that's fine. No, I'm glad we read it. Um, I'm glad I read it, and I'm I'm glad I saw the movie. The movie's good. It it definitely holds up. It's got the good jump scares, and even when you know it's going to come, it's still good. It delivers well, and... Yeah, it's a solid film. Definitely. Um, it's a solid popcorn film that started the big budget popcorn films. For sure. Yeah. So the book, it's worthwhile. It, I wouldn't put it on my top list. Yeah. Uh, just some of the writing was, oh, okay, that's that's the sentence you're going with? Okay. It's a little clunky. <laughs> yeah. Um, Very tropey. But I would say definitely the film is worth seeing if you haven't seen it, which I, most people have seen it at this point. But if you haven't seen it because you're young and, you know, check it out. It's good. The book, you could skip. 
I would say, unless you're really, really interested and you just want to see the differences and you want to know why we were happy that Hooper it's died more in the book. But interesting as a fossil of 1970s life than yeah. it is as a thriller book. Right. I just think there's probably better books that do both thriller and 1970s small town life. Yeah. So I sure if you if you're real if you really want to see the difference between them, check it out, read the book. Otherwise, I would say, yeah. Don't bother. Watch the movie. and enjoy. So they keep saying it was the bestseller book. It it was struggling to be the bestseller book. It was a bestseller after the film came out. Yeah. And it it was written at the same time as Watership Down. So do you go for bunnies or do you go for sharks? Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I saw a quote about that. My book would have been higher, but some stinking rabbit was on the, the, the list for weeks and weeks and weeks. So there you go. So one more, a couple bits of fun trivia. Uh, the cover that was done for the movie was almost by accident. The guy had a picture of the shark and he was doing some other artwork with the model and decided, oh, you know, why don't you just kind of stand there and pretend you're swimming and I'll draw you on top of that. So that was, you know, sort of a, a last minute change to the poster that's become so iconic. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I did decided not to click on was in the Wikipedia articles talking about how the poster um, was intended to reference um vaginal teeth okay because that was a it was a, a thing during the early 70s this that, that there was a the whole thing about like pink floyd yeah and the teeth in your vagina and you man eaters and all of this uh, st- whatever anyways did not click so okay. yeah feminism um, is scary you go right ahead, listeners, and look up, what is it, vaginitis, dentitis, or yeah. I can't even say it. Um, but that's that's for you and your Google. <laughs> yeah, just remember to click off the safe search. Yeah. It'll be fun. Yeah. It'll be so much fun. Yeah. Otherwise. Um, sharks also don't get that big. Females are larger than males, so that's a little bit of a fun thing. Uh, females, at the most, get to be about 20, 21 feet. And this shark's supposed to be 25, and they always reference the as a him, although how would they know? Right. <sighs> Toxic masculinity. <laughs> if it's big and scary, it must be a man. <laughs> so toxic masculinity and bromance. That that's a good combo. Yeah, for sure. Well that's how you that literally though, I mean not to get all serious here, but that is how you fight toxic masculinity is you have good male relationships where they're allowed to have emotions and they're allowed to, you know, have the full gamut of the human experience without judgment or shame. So mm-hmm. hooray for, you know, buddy fishermen. Yeah. So overall, lots of smart changes made from, from the, the book, book to, to the, the movie. Yep. Yeah. Indeed. Right. Okay. Pages and Popcorn Podcast was brought to you today by well, patrons are wonderful, wonderful patrons. So join us at patreon.com slash pages and popcorn podcast. And you too can support us with $1 a month or $5 a month. You will get our supplementals, our back catalog of supplementals, as well as the episodes as soon as they are finished ready, which in this case, Jaws um, was probably going to be right before it's due on Friday morning. But sometimes I get them done ahead of time and you will get them ahead of time. So patreon.com slash pages and popcorn podcast and we will see you next time.